0: Father, we seek your blessing, we seek a blessing from uh, your mouth this morning, from your words it speaks, um, Lord, we want to be receptive to the words you have for us, and um, humble under your word, um, to receive it for our strengthening and our transformation, so please speak, in Jesus' name, Amen. <laughs> Alright, so uh, today is National Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Um, And so hundreds of churches across most of the denominations uh, are preaching about life today. Um, We have a kind of extra week before we start our new sermon series in Genesis next week. Um, So I wanted to take this opportunity uh, to speak on this subject. Uh, The Bible's core message about human life is that it's valuable. It's valuable. Every life is precious and every life matters very deeply to God. And it's really very wonderful news. It's very good news. Um, The idea of this sanctity of human life is really uh, one of the key foundation stones of our whole Gospel. Um, So I'm really glad to have the opportunity to talk about this subject today. (laughs) But at the same time, I'm aware that as I stand up to speak uh, on the idea of the sanctity of human life, it's probably gonna make some of you anxious. It might make you anxious for one of two reasons. Um, Either because you're afraid I'm gonna get very political, Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe you're afraid that what I have to say is going to bring up old pain from the past, like jab at some old wounds. Um, so before I begin, I want to try to calm both of those anxieties. Um, first, I really don't want to be political. Um, I don't think the, po- the pulpit is the right place for politics. And obviously this idea of the sanctity of life has a lot of political implications, um, most of which are hot button issues right now, like abortion and euthanasia, and capital punishment, and police shootings, and war. And all these issues, of course, are very important, and our theology and our morality have consequences. They're likely to inform our our politics. Um, But how you vote is honestly really not my reason for standing up here today. Um, I'm here to feed you on the living word of God, and to help you discern how you're going to live in the light of it. So I promise you I'm not picking this subject because it's politically spicy. Uh, But neither do I want to avoid it just because it's politically controversial. Now, second, if you're anxious about it being painful, then I really want you to be comforted today. I want you to walk out of here today with good news. Because the Bible does put its finger on our most painful realities but it never leaves us hopeless or comfortless, and neither will I. And as usual with Jesus, the solution is much bigger and much better than the problem. So with both of those anxieties hopefully calmed, (laughs) let's have a look at why the sanctity of human life is such an important and glorious idea in scripture. I'm gonna look at this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 21 that was read earlier. Kind of a strange passage that you probably feel like you haven't ever read it before or heard it preached on before um, it's page 163 of the church bible's deuteronomy 21 starting at verse 1. so this is the passage from the law of moses and it's all about unsolved murders it says nothing specifically about any of the controversial issues that i mentioned but it really shows us the enormous value that god places on human life So page 163, Deuteronomy 21. So there are three things I want to notice from Deuteronomy 21. First, that all human life is valuable. Second, that proximity increases responsibility. And third, shed blood requires atonement. Okay, those are the three big ideas. Human life is valuable, proximity increases our responsibility, and shed blood requires atonement. So, first of all, all human life is valuable. All life. So God said through Moses in Deuteronomy 21, verse 1, If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed him, then here's what you do. And what follows is a set of instructions that would take a whole lot of work, and be very costly to follow through. Here's what they were commanded to do about an anonymous corpse. First, measure the distance from the dead body to all the surrounding cities and determine which was the closest. Second, find a heifer, that's a young cow, that has never been yoked. Third, find a piece of prime farmland that has never been farmed. And then fourth, perform a ritual sacrifice of the heifer in that valley, a ritual that involves all the elders of the town and their priests. So what a lot of work they had to do on behalf of a dead stranger. All that would probably take at least a full day of everybody's time, getting the mayor and the governor out to spend a day of their time on this. It's going to cost the town the price of a virgin heifer as a cow that has never been milked or worked. That's a prime asset. That's like a brand new tractor. And God told them to give it up for the sake of a dead stranger. And then he said to do it in a piece of virgin farmland with running water. A valley with running water. Running water. Do you know how rare that is in Israel? How rich do you have to be to own a plot of land with running water and then not farm it? Um, so what God is saying through this law is that the person who died is precious. That person's valuable. He or she may just be a dead stranger to you guys, but they're precious to me. They're precious soul. I knew them and I loved them. So now notice in verse 1 that there are no qualifications about who they did this for. Okay, it just says in verse 1, someone. See that? Someone. Not some Israelite, not some adult, not some male, and not some innocent person. Just someone. Anyone. Anyone who you might find in this situation. Now, think about it. What kind of person is going to be most likely to be found slain out in the open country, murdered out there? What kind of person? It's probably going to be someone disreputable, isn't it? Maybe a criminal, maybe a gang member, or some poor foreign traveler like a refugee, or just a local tramp. Chances are low that it's anyone that society's going to care very much about But God shows through this law how much he cares. And this law makes them care too, because they have to make an effort for this person. And the only qualification for receiving this kind of attention is that they were someone. They had human blood flowing in their veins, and that's all. So this is God putting into law what he promised to Noah way back in Genesis chapter 8. So God said this to Noah and to all humankind through him. For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. So that's in Genesis chapter 8. And that last line, of course, looks back to Genesis chapter 1, to the creation of the world in 127, where God says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And everything that we believe about human life is built on this verse. We come back to it again and again, that we are, all of us, created in the image of God. That is the reason human life is valuable, and it's the only reason. Not for the good that we can do, or the things we can invent, or the beauty we can create, but just for who we are, who God has made us to be. And actually all of you believe that already because it's at the heart of your Declaration of Independence. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. It's built on Genesis 1.27. You built a country on this doctrine and it's an absolutely wonderful doctrine. So dignifying to all human life. But if you think about it, it's also kind of offensive in a way, right? It offends our pride because it really does say, when you press hard into this, that no accomplishment or rank or achievement changes our value at all. The starving street orphan in India is just as valuable as the Queen of England. And the dumbest drug addicted punk is just as valuable as Albert Einstein. And even, we can say that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was no more valuable than Adolf Hitler, right? Because you cannot devalue your blood by any evil thing you think or do or say, and neither can you increase its value by any virtue or hard work or achievement. And maybe you love that and find it wonderful, Um, but I also understand if you find that offensive. But whether we like it or not, that is what God says about us, that we are special because he made us in his image. So human life is sacred, yes, but it really has nothing to do with us and everything to do with God. We are valuable only because we are made in God's image and loved by him. And I think it's right to conclude from God's word that out of all the things that God made in the whole universe, human life is the most precious thing to him. We see that in scripture by the way he defends it. He defends it the most vigorously. And we see it here in Deuteronomy 21 because the heifer, the valuable cow who is perfect, is sacrificed for the sake of some dead human who is probably very imperfect. So in God's eyes, the worst and most wretched human is still infinitely more valuable than the noblest and best animal. And that's what we mean when we say that human life is valuable or when some people say that it's sacred, so that's the first thing. Now, second, proximity increases our responsibility. Or in other words, the closer we are to a person in need, the more important it becomes that we step in to help. Now, the first idea is very old, and this idea is very new, at least to me. Um, It's something that I learned just this past weekend at the Phi Center event, Um, So the fight center in town hosted two speakers called John Ensor and Mark Nicholson, and they taught um, on this passage on Deuteronomy 21, that's the reason I found it, Um, and they showed this idea that proximity increases responsibility, Um, and it's actually an idea that you find all over the Bible, starting in Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel, so we think for a moment about that story. After Cain murders his brother in Genesis chapter 4, God comes to him and asks him, where is your brother? And Cain's response is in two parts, do you remember? He says, I don't know. And then he asks the question, am I my brother's keeper? Right? And the first response from Cain is interesting because Cain lies to God's face. He says, I don't know, when he obviously did know. Um, so before there was any law on the books against murdering, Cain seems to have known that he just did a terrible thing because he felt the need to cover it up. And actually, a lot of people in books and movies talk about this reality, that you're never the same person after you've killed another human being. It wounds your soul in a unique way, and it seems that Cain was experiencing that. So he lied to God, and then he adds this snarky question, am I my brother's keeper. And to this question the rest of the Bible answers resoundingly yes (laughs) yes you are that's actually a great description of you Um, we are responsible for each other to love our neighbors as ourselves and obviously we can't take care of everyone in the world we can't even take care of everyone in this room but we can take care of the people nearby and God says we must Proximity increases responsibility. So I'm gonna show you a couple of uh, examples of this in God's law and his word. Um, So God's law, Leviticus chapter five verse one says, "'If you sin by not stepping up and offering yourself as a witness to something that you've seen or heard in a case of wrongdoing, you'll be held responsible.'" In other words, if you can help and you don't, that's sin. And again, in our gospel reading from Matthew 25, Jesus talks about how he's going to judge all the nations at the end of time. And he says he's going to separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the goats. And he'll judge the people on his left not for anything they did. It's for what they didn't do, right? So he says these terrifying words, Depart from me, you curse, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. So in other words, you could have helped, but you didn't. You stayed at home and shut your ears while your brother cried for help, and that's the problem. So yes, we are our brother's keeper. And in Deuteronomy 21 here, God calls one town to take responsibility for the murder that happened out in open country. And the choice is on the basis of proximity. It's simple math. It's proximity. So verse 2 says, Then your elders and your judges shall come out, and they shall measure the distance to all the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city that's nearest to the slain man shall take responsibility for him. Now, God isn't trying to accuse the nearest town of committing the murder, is he? He's not playing a numbers game. Statistically, it's most likely to have been you. Um, No, because in verse 7, the liturgy that the town elders are given to speak assumes that the nearest town is, in fact, innocent. But nevertheless, they are called on to take responsibility because of their proximity. So here's what they say in verse 7. The elders of the town assemble in front of the priests... And they declare, our hands did not shed this blood, and nor did our eyes see it shed. And when they say this, they're making a double declaration of innocence, right? So um, in response to two of God's laws, they're innocent. So first, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, in Exodus chapter 20 they say we did not shed blood and that command is stated negatively you shall not but god also says the same thing positively in leviticus 19 verse 8 where he says you shall love your neighbor as yourself so not only will you not murder him but you will also come to his aid if you see him being attacked you will do something If you hear about a plot against his life, that's part of the command to love him. So the double declaration of innocence is, our hands did not shed this blood, so we didn't break the sixth commandment, and nor did our eyes see it shed, so we did not break the law of love either. And the strong implication is that if they had seen the person being attacked, they would have rushed into help, and God would have expected that of them and held them accountable otherwise. So first of all, human life is valuable, and second, proximity increases responsibility, and now third, shed blood requires atonement. So in verse eight, the elders say to the Lord, accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. That's verse 8. So, even though this town is innocent of the murder and didn't see it happen, it still falls under the shadow of the guilt of innocent blood. That's what verse 9 says. And the whole point of this law is to solve that problem, to purge the guilt of innocent blood. So at its core, this is a deeply hopeful law. It's not condemning anyone. It's not describing a hopeless situation. It's telling God's people, this is what you do. Here's a very real problem, and here's a very effective solution. The guilt of innocent blood is a real problem, and a big problem, but it has a solution, and that solution is atonement, and that's the word we find in verse eight. Accept atonement, O Lord. So what's atonement? It's actually a very simple idea. The Hebrew word just means covering. Atonement is covering, right? So um, when Noah built the ark, God instructed him to cover it on the outside and on the inside with pitch. And that's the same Hebrew word as the word for atonement, cover. So left exposed, Noah's ark would have rotted in the salt water and it would have leaked seawater, but not if it was covered, right? Shielded, protected, hidden. And that's the idea behind atonement. And here in Deuteronomy 21, we see that only one thing can atone for the shedding of innocent blood and that is innocent blood, right? The life of the heifer is required to make atonement in this case. And that sounds kind of ironic in one sense, right? The solution to death is more death. Um, But it's also kind of obvious in another sense, because if human life is the most valuable thing in all creation, and if the life is in the blood, then what else could you use to pay for blood other than blood? Throughout God's law, blood sacrifice is necessary to make atonement and to forgive sin. So here in Deuteronomy 21, as elsewhere, the blood of a heifer is used, a pure and innocent animal. But wait, didn't we already discover that the best and finest animal was still not as precious to God as the worst and most wretched human? If that's the case, then how is the heifer's blood valuable enough to pay for a human life? That's a great question. (laughs) And of course it isn't. <laughs> Hebrews 10 verse 4, with the blood of bulls and pulls the goats, in, it is impossible to take away sin. That's right. The only blood that can actually atone for sins is of course the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. It's human blood for human blood, innocent blood to atone for the guilty, divine blood to be valuable enough to pay not just for one person, but for millions. Come on. So the heifer in Deuteronomy 21 is a placeholder. It's a historical bookmark so that God seeing Jesus crucified in the distant future could retroactively apply his atoning blood to their present situation and to every similar situation where animal blood had been trusted for forgiveness. So atonement was really made there through blood and sin was really covered. So this little law in Deuteronomy 21 isn't one that we think about much. I'd never heard it preached on before this past weekend, Um, but I think it eloquently speaks to the value and the sanctity of all human life. And this, law demonstrates that all life is valuable, from greatest to least and from purest to vilest. We are all our brother's keeper in protecting that life, and when we fail, the solution is atonement. Blood covers blood, and life covers life. So that's what God says about human life and it should shape our beliefs and decisions in the present day. It means that if we would take a human life through violence or war or capital punishment or euthanasia or abortion, we should know how we will answer to God for the shedding of that blood. I'm not saying that there are no cases to be made for any of those things, but I am saying that we must reckon with the cost. We must ask if the cases we make properly account for the seriousness of that shed blood. Because Deuteronomy 21 says that without the atoning blood of the heifer, the city nearest to the murdered person would carry the guilt of innocent blood even though the murdered person died far away in in open country and their death was nothing to do with that city. They would still carry the guilt of innocent blood. So see how serious that is. And how much more, then, does Tallahassee carry the guilt of innocent blood? For the 10 or 20 murders that we see every year within city limits, for the people who die from preventable poverty, for the uncared-for elderly, and our several thousand abortions. So let me speak directly to the subject of abortion this morning. I've been listing it along with other ways that we might end a human life. And that is what the church believes, that an unborn baby is a human life. So some scientists have tried to argue in the past century that an unborn baby isn't a human life until a certain stage of its development. But there isn't much agreement among those scientists. And in the light of all the latest research, none of their attempts are very persuasive. There's no reasonable place to draw the line between not human and human except the point of conception. And that's what the Bible says too, to the extent that it talks about this. So let me give you some examples. Uh, Psalm 139 says, For you, O Lord, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Ecclesiastes 11 verse 5 says, As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. And here's a very striking law from Exodus 21. It's a law for when men are fighting together and they accidentally harm an unborn baby. It says this, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so that her children children come out. But there is no harm. The one who hits her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, you shall pay life for life." Mm -hmm. In the New Testament, there's the wonderful scene where pregnant Mary carrying Jesus visits pregnant Elizabeth carrying John the Baptist. An unborn John, filled with the Holy Spirit, leaps for joy in Elizabeth's womb. So we see an unborn baby worshipping, and only a human can be a worshipper. So in the way the Bible talks about the unborn, it treats them consistently as human lives, and that makes abortion a very serious case of the shedding of innocent blood. Even one would be an outcry. But today, the numbers are alarming. So let's think about Florida. In Florida, about two people every year are executed by lethal injection. Three or 4,000 people a year commit suicide. About 5,000 die from drug overdoses, which is way up from five years ago. Uh, Car accidents claim the lives of about 30,000 people a year. Cancer kills about uh, 43,000 Floridians every year. And cancer is called our highest cause of death, but it isn't. The highest cause of death in Florida every year is abortion. 70,000 unborn souls. And that's enough people to fill every seat at FSU Stadium every year. And the same is true globally. In 2019, abortion was the highest cause of death in the world. Did you know that more people die from abortion every year than from AIDS, or from cancer, or from starvation, or from war? 2019 was 42 million souls, and that's not very far from the number of people who died in the world's bloodiest war. World War II claimed 53 million, but that took six years. This is a crisis. But it's not beyond the atoning power of the blood of Jesus. Even this is not the worst thing that human beings have done. The worst thing we did was to crucify the Son. And as we did that, Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we do not know what we do. So friends, what are we going to do? What do we do? The law in Deuteronomy 21 is all about what to do. Here's what to do now. There's a solution to this problem. God has provided it in his mercy. Um, So first, what do we do if this is personal for us? Maybe we are realizing that we have personally been careless in the shedding of innocent blood. We have participated, or we have conspired, or we have allowed it to continue, or our eyes saw it done and we did not rush in to stop it. And I know that includes many of us here. It's common for all of us to do very serious things without realizing that there's anything wrong. And pretending that it's not serious or that we didn't know does not get us off the hook. So now if we do realize it, if our consciences are convicting us of sin, even now, then there's an answer, there's hope, there's a solution. What we need is to be covered to be atoned for by the blood of Jesus, and it will be fully dealt with and of our conscience forever. His blood covers the sins of shedding innocent blood. But we do need to acknowledge the sin, frankly, and not hide it, because he can't cover it if we're covering it up. Mm. We've got to bring it into the light so that he can cover it. And depending on what that is, that might mean confessing it aloud to a mature friend or to a priest. And if you're having trouble feeling forgiven when you pray in private, then the next thing to do is to pray with someone. God has appointed us as instruments in each other's forgiveness. So I really want to repeat for you the verses we read from Psalm 32, we sang them earlier. Um, The beginning of Psalm 32 says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Mm. there's that word again, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. And here David testifies to keeping quiet about his own sin. He says, for when I kept silent, when I hid it and didn't confess, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And I think we all know what that feels like. But the psalmist goes on, then... I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I will cover again. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It says to everyone, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. That's what to do. So if we carry pain or guilt, let's unburden ourselves today. God is ready to listen and ready to forgive. And once our own sin is dealt with, then what else can we do? Well, friends, we are our brother's keeper. We are responsible unto God for our city and our neighborhood and proximity increases that responsibility. So let's shoulder together the burden of praying for our city and the hundreds of innocent lives that are ended here. That in his mercy, Jesus would purge the guilt of innocent blood from our midst and cover it with his atoning blood. So, if we see a life in jeopardy before our eyes, let's always, always run to help. Whatever the risk or the person it costs, let us love our neighbor. If an unborn life can be saved through our love or our financial help or our willingness to adopt an unknown baby, then let us by all means save. And if our neighbor's life can be saved through our kindness or our generosity with what we have or our willingness to stand and fight alongside him for justice, then let us by all means save it. For our city has seen enough death and we claim to know the God of everlasting life.